0: I don't know if you all have heard, but Dr. Bart Ehrman, you know, the one that wrote Misquoting Jesus, the one that took everything that we knew about the Bible and turned it on its head. And then we all ended up being shit out the backside of religion. He has a new book, and it's about Armageddon. I'm already three chapters into it. I'm doing the audio and reading because I got to underline and all that stuff because I'm going to take on some of these Theo bros who keep pretending that the end times are next week. We'll put a link to our Amazon and bookshop store in the description of this episode and then we can read it together. Also, thank you to a listener who suggested we set up like a donation app. If you don't want to uh, support us every month, at $7 a month. So we do now have a Venmo. I'll put the link there too. And it's just at deconversion on Venmo. Thanks. Hi, and welcome to Deconversion Therapy, the solo episode. So Bonnie's not here today, and it's super bummer-y, because the woman works so hard. She works her donk off, and until someone makes her independently wealthy, or we get a donor uh, who's a bit senile and gives all their money to us instead of the church— unfortunately, she will probably miss one episode out of the month. So I'm going to take this one and sort of tell about my whole deconstruction, deconversion story, including some of the things I see now as far as issues with the Bible and so forth. And in the future episodes where it's just me, you guys can tell me what you want to hear. I've done true crime mixed with religion before because there is a lot of it, a lot of it that is religiously motivated. Just let me know you can send us a DM or write us at deconversion therapy podcast at Gmail and you know where to find us you know you can see my face on, TikTok. We're on Instagram. We have a Facebook group. And a shout out to our sponsors. We're really trying to make the personal Zoom times where you guys can talk with us face to face more frequent. So again, I think I'm going to do some of those myself. We're going to call it either Coffee with Karen or Coke with Karen. I thought cocktails. But for some reason, I'm Leaning towards Coke. Anywho, let's start from the very beginning. I was born a sweet, sweet child. Actually, I was so sweet. Now I am definitely a bit crusty at the edges, but I was like the the sweetest, kindest, cutest little child. No, it's damn ugly. And I was born to Southern Baptist parents. My mom was Southern Baptist born and raised, and my dad was from Cuba and so was nominally Catholic, but he converted when he met my mother. And I am what they call a miracle baby. So that's when you're told that you can't have kids anymore. Uh, They had my brother. He's a failure. So they're like, let's try again. And it was six years before I appeared on the scene. So I still have that to today where my parents, my mom's past, my, my dad always reminds me, we prayed for you for six years. So the guilt embedded in me that's like, I don't believe that is very hard. I just say thank you and I hug and kiss and all that. And I can get into my relationship with Christian family a little later in this episode. When my family settled in South Florida after being in other northern states, they started going to a very large Southern Baptist church. If you are not familiar with that kind of church in the 80s, if there is a hierarchy outside of high schools, it's within churches. And Southern Baptists are usually, because they are the richest churches—I will tell you why in a minute. They're also, like, the coolest because they have that money to do the pizza parties and have great grounds, you know, where we can play games or do different things. We had, like, an outdoor-by-the-lake venue there. So I grew up there. Um, My dad was a deacon. My mom was a Sunday school teacher, the whole thing. And in my home, like, God and Jesus were just there, It was talked about all the time. We prayed a lot, and we even had, if anyone remembers way back, there was this little thing that went on the kitchen table that was a little plastic loaf of bread, and then it had these cards in the middle that you would pick up each day, and it was called Daily Bread, and there'd be like a verse on it, and that sat in the middle of everybody's kitchen table along with the the coupons the snh food stamps all that so i grew up in what was known as an affluent area and that also meant lots of white people even though we were sort of the only quote non-whites now if you've seen me you know i'm super white and even though I tried what my roommate in college once told me to do, put on mayonnaise and lay out, because you'll get darker faster, um, I really in general have fair skin. And then people would meet my dad and hear his very thick accent, which he still has. And it was interesting because I sort of got to be a spy on racism. I'd hear the wetback jokes, I'd hear the spake jokes. Um, and I still do as an adult, because no one thinks that they're not safe when they say those things around someone who looks like me. But uh-huh, yeah, I see it and I hear it. So I grew up in the church, and I was very Christ Jesus focused from a young age. We had a revival one time, and a man spoke. And like his emotions got to me, and I felt everything I'm supposed to feel, and I told my parents, you know, I want to go forward and become a Christian. I think I was nine, but I I think I was younger. I think I was like seven because they kept calling me cute. So, you know, once you cross into the nine year old, it's you're starting to get uncute real quickly. So I do think I was about seven. They had me stay near them and not go up, and they got one of the ministers to talk to me afterwards because they all thought, well, maybe she's too young. We want her to really make her mind up, which I appreciate that the church that I went to was like that. So I went home, and Since I was a lonely kid, I knew how to read pretty quickly. Um, And I memorized half of Romans 8, 28. And I went back to my parents and the minister and quoted it. And I was like, I knew what I'm doing. I want to get saved. So they all prayed with me. And it was adorable. I used to have a little ponytail on top of my head. And I looked like pebbles from the Flintstones. And when I got baptized... It was the first time ironically that I sort of felt body shame because we had all these white, you know, baptismal gowns and I remember that the woman in front of me, you could see her bra strap when she came out of being baptized. And like the shame of it hit me. And I was very conscious that my outfit would be see-through. And so it's weird that such a, quote, holy time, to me, I was distracted also by my body, knowing it was shameful even though I was young. Well. Let's not get into what we you know clergy are into anyway. And I grew up uh, in the church, I went to a school that was attached to the church, and so did Bonnie, and we rode there together. And we have great stories about her grandmother who used to wear a turban, tiny lady, and would smoke, and like we're trapped in the Lincoln, and it's just like this smoke puff driving us either to or from school. But I went to, yeah, the Baptist, Southern Baptist, excuse me, school, and I had an older brother who was very talented, and Because he was very talented and well-known, I sort of got to write his coattails for a bit. And so everyone was like, oh, she's so cute because, you know, she's your little sister. And I was very into that. But as I grew up, I realized, you know, I didn't have his talent. And my mom was very vivacious. My dad was very intellectual and, you know, Uh, well-known in the area for being intellectual anyway. Um, And I started noticing I didn't have anything. I would sing in the choir. I did ballet. Um, But everything I tried, I never broke into the big time of this is the elite people that are in this group of whatever's. And I also would get really anxious about performing, whether in ballet or I played soccer for a bit and volleyball. I just would ask, you know, hey, take me out of the game. I just had a real fear uh, that I am still trying to explain to myself at 55 years old. But there was one thing I got to be good at, and that was Christianity, Where if someone's a Christian, they're like, you can't be good at Christianity. It's a relationship, not a religion. I was born again. I believed. I did my quiet times. I, you know, I had a constant dialogue in my body and in my head between me and Jesus. But I also sort of started to realize that I was finding my groove within church groups, within youth groups, and I could also do the right things that Christians would do. That isn't looked down on or anything as far as I would follow all the rules. I was a very goody-goody person. I would show up to everything. I could volunteer. Like, I was good at the role of being a Christian as well as being a Christian, although I always doubted myself. I was always rededicating my life. Uh, You know how it goes. And Southern Baptists, like I said, had a lot of money. And let me just talk a little bit about Southern Baptists and Southern Baptist money, because the epiphany I had a while ago, a couple weeks ago, which I know is not new, but it was in my head, was the reason why there was so much money. Southern Baptists, as I learned decades after I deconstructed from all of Christianity, They broke off from Baptists because they felt that the Bible, as it does, condones slavery and enslaving black people. So they broke off, Southern Baptists broke off from Baptists because they felt God wants us to keep slaves. So, you know, we're, we're splitting, the church is splitting. And what we see now with all the laws that are being made against LGBT, against black people, against women, is funded by the Southern Baptist white evangelical generational wealth that was accumulated on the backs of black slaves who they owned. Which blows my mind when I think about it. So all the the money that was going around that Southern Baptist church, there was you know some shit on how they actually accumulated that and their grandparents did and so forth. I'm glad I didn't know it then because I sure did love a full orchestra at Christmas time. Um, we did the thing called the singing Christmas tree, and I think we were one of the first in the nation that did it. It's this huge apparatus thing that they build with scaffolding, and then they put real tree limbs all around it, and it looks like this huge, very tall Christmas tree. And everyone would get to participate who are in the choirs, and you'd go and practice till late at night. And so it was, you know, a whole social activity, And below the Christmas tree, they even had like an EMT that belonged to the church, uh, because Bonnie's boyfriend, uh, you know, locked his knees and fainted, and so did other goobers, so they had to have those people below the tree. But I remember... You know, the orchestra, a lot of them would know my brother, even if they were adults, because my brother was like this musical whiz that was known all over. And so he'd be like, oh, so-and-so's going to be playing trumpet, so-and-so's on the timpani. And I was like, they—I didn't know they were Christian. I didn't—it was the first time I realized that our church would hire people, whether they were Christian or not, to come perform. I cannot tell you, like, that was a crack. That was a crack somewhere in my brain, because I was naive enough to think that everyone who participated in everything at church would believe that Jesus was the Messiah and the Savior, and to stare at these people and just go, they're leaving with a paycheck, just sort of blew my mind. And I would say that there were quite a few things that got dropped into my youth that if I had acknowledged with any critical thinking, which I was not taught, I would have realized this is a business, like Bonnie says. I did not realize that then. I really did feel that I had a best friend, a let's not use the word comrade anymore, but like Jesus... Was my instant dialogue in my head person. So I never felt alone. And I actually felt really skeezy when I was getting into puberty and I would shower because I'm taught all my parts. They're, you know, terrible. And here I am going, like, yeah, but Jesus is watching me. I would huddle in my corner of the shower and like scrub myself with soap, just going, I feel weird and I don't know how to feel holy and all that. So I did have that whole turmoil that a lot of people do when their hormones start going and they just feel shamed for everything. And one of the reasons is it was mentioned every fucking time at youth group. That's what it was about. And I have a friend who's a minister now who said, if we weren't thinking of sex when we were going to youth group, we were when we were coming out. I was a lonely kid, and I was a very quiet kid. So even though you see me now as this amazing, vibrant, you do not. You see me as exhausted. But I am not shy like I used to be. I definitely used to hide under things. And I even remember one time I was asked to pray, And I messed up just simply trying to talk and pray because I was so nervous that the girls made fun of me and the youth group. Um, I just didn't have any confidence, and I grew up pretty lonely in many respects. I was always getting in trouble. My parents did believe in spanking, although they thought it was good if the mother spanked with a hairbrush. And the father spanked with a belt, but my brother only got that like once. I got it all the fucking time. And my parents thought they were doing well. They really did. If you read any of the psychology books that were out during the day and then that freaking uh, James Dobson and all the other ones who were like, spare the rod, spoil the child, they thought they were doing the best they could. And what they would do is my mom would say, go wait for me in my bathroom. And I mean, I'd have a breakdown. She'd leave me in there 30 fucking minutes. And then she'd come in, whack me, and I'd be crying. And then she'd pray with me either before or after. So she was trying the best she could. But as we can see, Christian people and Gen X, there was some huge mixed messages going on. uh, And I think we all should get free therapy no matter what generation. But being a lonely child, I read a lot, and I would always be transported into fantasy if it was, um, you know, Little House on the Prairie books that were before my time but were very quaint after, whatever it was, and any kind of TV I could watch, although my parents restricted it, I would fall into because I was terrible at school. Like I was terrible. They invented the agenda because of me and I am not joking. When I was in seventh grade, I was so bad at taking my homework home. Let me give you an example. You're probably saying, please, Karen. All right, we used to have desks where you would lift the top up and keep your papers and books inside. Mine was the only one that was tilted because all my mangled papers and books and shit and old lunches were in there. Everyone's else is closed. Mine did not. Um, and I would be told, like, hey, you have to stay after and clean your desk multiple times. Also, the lost and found at the office was just Karen's closet. It was It was me, everything. I was just a mess. And of course, we didn't know what ADD was back then. We did know what hyper kids were, but I wasn't hyper. So I didn't fit into that. I was super quiet, but I just barely remembered, oh, I need to do work. And I will tell you, I remember in high school telling my parent, I think it was my mom, obviously, that I always felt like I was barely keeping my head above water. I just couldn't do it. Um, So the agenda was invented by my mother and Mrs. Green. Mrs. Green was a bitch. And she didn't like that she'd collect papers, but mine would not be collected. Now, remember, my parents were well-known in the community and the church and in the school. So it didn't make anybody look good that I didn't know how to actually do some homework and turn it the freak in. So, Mrs. Green got a little notebook and she would have me write the assignments down and then take it up to her at the end of the day. She would initial it. I'd take it home. I'd do the work and my mom would initial it afterwards. I could barely keep up with that. My mom would be like, Where's the notebook? And I'd be like, Ah, shit. And then Mrs. Green, Where's the notebook? Ah, crap. It was a disaster. Man see you youngins, you're so lucky with your Ritalin. It was always a struggle for me. And it actually made me start to do my biggest sin that I ever did as a Christian, which was lie. I would make up things close to the dog ate my homework. Um, And some of it was real, like, you know, I'm sure they heard things that sounded crazy. Well, I dropped it into a puddle when I was looking at a bird, you know. And they're like, oh, she's lying. That one could be real. Um, But the rest of them, I just had a really hard time grasping any of it. So I found refuge in the church itself because there isn't supposed to be a hierarchy, but there is. And in our church, the hierarchy came from if you're there all the time. And because my family was there all the time, of course I was. So I knew more people and I knew my way around the church building. And these things built into me a kind of confidence, even despite me not having any talents like my family did. Or, uh, you know, I'm barely passing school or whatever. And this just really brought me into the fantasy world of between my books that weren't based, you know, in my reality and me having to make up things to get out of failing certain things. I definitely, uh, it put me on the path of holding on to God and other things that were, quote, supernatural and weren't based in something I could see and hear and touch. It didn't take me big jumps and leaps to understand that that kind of entity that a lot of people are like, oh, I need proof that they exist, that they existed, because that was sort of already how my mind related and all that um and especially as i was trying to find like my place in the world because my brother was so talented i feel that i really grabbed on to the church in many ways and when there ended up being even more of a hierarchy and youth group because our youth group really did sort of look up to those people And those kids who were deeper into the Bible and into Christianity, they sort of rose to the top as the, quote, cool kids. I would not categorize myself as a cool kid of a church youth group because I know how embarrassing that sounds. But I will just put it out there (laughs) that if that was all I could get, that's it. But even during that time, man, dating was just... I remember I dated one guy, he's a minister now, and he had written out rules, this was in college, of things we couldn't do, uh, t- you know, to stay pure, and one is like, be in the apartment alone, um, you know, be out late at night, and one was no dry th- thrusting. Ah, memories, man. Anyway, I, you know, because I was a Southern Baptist and the way they felt about women, it wasn't like I thought, well, I am going to be a leader of men. But a lot of us would take time during youth group to pray for your future spouse. And as hard as I could pray— and see a blank face there, I would always picture, you know, whoever I'm dating of the day. And if they were going to be a youth minister, which one did, also, I'd be like, I feel God's calling me to be the wife of a youth minister. I would not say wife of a pastor, because I already knew I didn't fit in the mold of a yes person. I was still quiet, but I already knew that I wasn't just a Proverbs 31 gingham skirt type of kid. So I would pray, you know, God use me, and and I prayed about where I wanted to go to college and all that, and I ended up at the Southern Baptist College attached to my church and my grade school. Of course, there was a break in between there where I went to heathen public school I might have stories about that. I forget. But did I go drinking? No, I did not. Did I do drugs? No, I did not. Have sex? No. Did I date non-Christians? Oh, yes, I did. I dated one or two. Was it missionary dating? No. I felt so guilty. Like, I felt... I would grab onto any straw if they would say, yeah, you know, I drove by a church today. I'd be like, there we go, Jesus. I know you're bringing them closer, and I'm here. I can't wait for it. But a lot of those, of course, they might have been great guys, but it was my self-confidence, lack thereof, that had me fall into relationships with some people I shouldn't have, obviously, because my greatest thing that attracted me and a guy at one point is if they liked me. (laughs) So that's not a good, that's not good advice to the youngins out there. So I did date, I think, two, maybe three for a short time non-Christians. And I would just feel disgusting. I would pray. I'd ask for forgiveness. It was like, oh, this is the hardest time of my life to get through. And just the whole almost physical feelings that I would get when I was, quote, sinning were overwhelming to me. It was definitely, of course, spiritual trauma now, but I could just feel it down under my skin whenever I wasn't doing something I was told is the right way, which is staying within the Christian field when you date, when you have friends even, all that. But I got to skip a lot of this. Let's jump way ahead. Let's just boom. I went to Southern Baptist College Um It was a blast in many ways. Bonnie left and went to a, quote, real college, but I got deeper into the Lord, and I did a lot of leadership things, and um, I really enjoyed it. All good. Let's move through to I ended up going to my mailbox one day and all this shit coming out in the mailbox. It was generally spam mail, but in that day we almost felt spam mail was meant for us because there was so little of it. And I got like CCM magazine, and within that magazine, there were these blow-in cards, and they all fell out, and they were opportunities for young Christians. One of them was to get college credit for doing short-term missions with Youth with a Mission. And I talked to my parents, and I'm like, I feel this is what I should do. I can get... Credits, I can do writing and all that. So I ended up going to Youth with a Mission between my third and fourth year of college. I ended up first going to their headquarters in Hawaii. I mean, who doesn't like Hawaii? And you're meeting people. But it was the first time I was really introduced to non-denominational or charismatic ways of worshiping. Everyone was raising their hands and people were talking in tongues. And I couldn't do that because Southern Baptists say, that is for the old days of Pentecost. That isn't for new people in this day and age. But there were people doing that. And I felt if the Holy Spirit really is nearly equal to Jesus and God, then I want that too. You know, I want to be the best Christian. I want to be close to God. And two or three times people would gather around me and pray that I would get the gift of speaking tongues until finally, you know, I'm in like a group of eight people, adults, much older than I am, laying their hands on me. And I'm like, you know, my mouth just isn't moving. And they're like, oh, no, you have to move your mouth. You just start saying anything, and God will take over from there. Well, guess what? I could then do it. And mine sounded strangely familiar to theirs, all sort of that same accent, so to speak. And I always doubted that it was real, but that's the thing. You're not supposed to doubt. You're supposed to claim it as real and live and, quote, walk in the opposite spirit. So if you doubt that it's really from God, you've got to walk in the opposite spirit and do it more. So that's what I would do, and I can still do it now if anyone asks. And I ended up After I did two weeks of, like, training, which was really just Bible study and maybe learning about the country a bit, I joined the small ship that they had. Youth with the Mission had a big ship and a small ship. The big ship did medical procedures, and the small ship just had a mishmash of people. And there were five of us in the smallest room possible. But, of course, we all grew so close, and I had a blast. I was always up for adventure and, you know, walking through the jungles of Haiti and doing things that I really shouldn't be allowed to do, giving polio drops to kids in orphanages and there was such a peaceful feeling that would come over me and i would pray sometimes i'd sleep on top of the boat at night and as it rocked and i'd look at the stars and i swore that i heard you know god's quiet voice calling me to just go quote forth or out there as in be a missionary with my life which is a coincidence because I enjoyed what I was doing, so I'm very glad God called me to do something I already loved. So I went back, I finished my senior year, and a girl that I had done YWAM, she did the medical part, she said, hey, when I'm done with college, I want to do their discipleship training school, which is six months. And it's three months of sort of intense Bible studying and really crying. That's what it is. Free labor and crying. And then you go and do an outreach to wherever God tells that group of people to go. So my friend ended up becoming a famous doctor instead. I ended up, you know, working at the mall after college. So I'm like, let you know. I want to go, she said she wanted to go to Australia, so that's where I pursued. And I was really excited about it. I went and told my pastor at the time. So my pastor, and Bonnie's pastor, is a very powerful man now. He is the preacher at Prestonwood Baptist in Plano, Texas. He was one of the advisors to Trump. You'll see him... Just too many places. Anyway, uh, I went to his office, and I was like, hey, so I'm doing this. And he liked me. He liked my family, all that. Oh, did he like my family's money? Family. Um, And he said, well, since you're not going with the Baptist journeymen missionaries, we can't support you as a church. I was blown away. I really was. Not only was I too young to know that there were all these factions of missionaries, and if you're not with the right one, that your church won't financially support you because Youth with a Mission had given me a sheet saying, first things first to raise your money, go to your church, you know, blah, blah. And so I just had to ask my parents and I still feel disgusting about it to this day, and maybe I sold some stuff. I do know that the minister of music there, who I love dearly and actually married my husband and I, he did ask like his different choirs if they'd donate money, so I got some money from them. So there I go. I'm going to Australia by myself because my friend decides she's smart. And here's Karen the idiot going. And I remember I was super into basketball all the time, like through college and everything. And I asked them on the airplane if they could put the final four on. I was just so American. And there I was landing in Australia. Everything felt different. I was freezing to death. And I was just like, fuck our textbooks. All I remember, every time we learned about Australia, the first line is, Australia is the hottest continent and the, you know, or driest continent or any of that. No, it was wet and cold in Melbourne, and I was dying. And I was the only American in my, quote, class, as in they have ones coming in e- either every three months or six months, and it's in this huge base that finally sold in Surrey Hills, Melbourne, Australia. You can look it up. But the people there were mostly from around that region. So lots of Australians, New Zealanders, Cook Island, Polynesian uh, people were part of that. And the first day, we all had to sit in a big circle, the people in our class, and go around and introduce ourselves. And I played this goofy game. I saw one empty seat. And they said, this guy here is finishing his university exams and it's running late. And in my mind, I'm like, whoever sits there, I'm going to marry. And in came my husband. And he sat there and I went, nah. So that's our famous joke. But slowly he and I got to know each other as we toasted our crumpets. That's right. Uh, the fun times. Now you're not allowed to date there at all, so we didn't. Our first date was the day after it officially stopped, our school did. Um, and we went on one date with my friend Kathy. She was just, I don't know, y'all, it, it was sad. But um, you know, DTS discipleship training school is so deep. And they have something that, they have a lot of nicknames and lingo. And one was O and B time, which meant open and brokenness. You would confess everything. You would pull things out of your gut just to feel as clean and holy and pure as you can before you're going to go minister to other countries, right? So I would be like, man, I think my, my pot's empty, I did not do a, enough sin. And to tell the truth, that isn't a brag. That is a pitifulness of my life. And once I confessed, you know, uh, I may have had an impure thought or I read a book I wasn't supposed to, you know, that's the end of my my stuff. Oh, my lying, yeah, and the line. So I remember that, um, you know, I got taken under people's wing a lot, some of the adults and the leaders, because I was sort of the only American. And I remember they also went around the room and asked everyone, what do you think is the greatest country in the world? There's Karen sitting up front because I'm a nerd. And I'm like, you know, United States, it's my country. Love it. I was shocked how many people said the United States and then one person said Japan. And it blew my mind right then that... America is very different, very different from other countries. I cannot imagine not feeling your own country was the best. Of course, feelings have changed uh, since 30 years ago. But during that whole time, I did get to know myself really well, but I also had some of my first bad experiences. So they would bring in, quote, anointed ministers from other places. One was positive that I had done all this sex because I was American and was trying to get me to confess. It was awful. And then another time, I already told you about the guy that uh, he was having purity issues. He was jerking off. And they taught us that if you're doing that, you're sinning against the person, that you're visualizing. So he came up to me afterwards and said, I have a confession to make. That was a horrible scene. That's all I'm going to say about that. But I really, um, what I really hated was this time that was well-known among youth with a mission. This guy would come in from Denmark or somewhere. I don't know what base he was on, but I think he was, Uh, you know, from the Netherlands originally, and he would talk about the father heart of God and how you see your earthly fathers, how you see God. And I'm like, that is probably why I see God is, you know, someone pretty great in my eyes. And it went around the room and a lot of people would cry and they'd be like, you know, my father was always so distant and that's how i see god or my father was an authoritarian that's how i see it or he was a wimp or he was you know missing an action or whatever it was and i'm like i'm i'm pretty fortunate and that guy drilled down on me forever to get me to pull up negativity about my father and i will never forgive him because that is such an unhealthy thing to do cuz you can look for negativity and you'll find it but I just thought that that's just going beyond the pale to me and making a division between a daughter and her parent in general, which is a very cult-like strategy if they were thinking it through. It's to make division and pull you apart from your family members. I will go ahead and say I don't think why Wham is a cult. It definitely has very many cultish behaviors. So it is after a leader um, who also made up a certain way of praying. And right there I should have gone like, hmm, I why do we have to pray that certain way? And what it was is you start with praise. It was like nine steps. You start with praise, and then you go into confession and confess your sins quietly or whatever. Then you ask for forgiveness. Then you, you know, it just goes on and on. Um, And that should have been my clue. But after three months of doing this and sort of flirting with my husband a little bit, Then it was time for us to pray and ask God where he wanted us to go. And the options were like Singapore, Australia, and India. And God called me to India. It's so weird. God called me to the most adventurous place because that's who I was. And he also called my crush. So that was good. And so we both went to India. And that is where we fell in love. And we tell our firstborn daughter, yes, her name was going to be India. And just hush up. It was between that and when we got pregnant with her, um, and it was going to be Bahama Mamas. So anyway, we fell in love there, and eventually, you know, I had to go back to the states, and he went back to school in Australia, and then he came and visited me, and we're like, we're meant for each other, etc. Married, boom, go to Australia there for a little while feel God's calling us overseas to Thailand boom go to Thailand and the experiences there were also adventure and great i ended up getting invited to teach english to young monks or novice monks at a you know well-known wat or temple up on a mountain and every thursday i'd get on the back of you know a motorcycle taxi and go up there and teach these young monks a little bit of English. And because women can't at all touch them, they can't even touch things that they're touching. So when they have their bowls and they do like a parade and people will fill it with different food because they depend on society, and it's called alms, you'll see that no one touches the bowl. They drop the food from above. And so when I'm teaching from a textbook that has pictures, I would have to put it down, remove my hand, then they could touch it and look at it. So, you know, I just felt I love this. I'm in my element. And when missionaries or really any Christians are not making successful converts, they tell themselves at least seeds have been planted. And we relied on that a lot. But I really enjoyed living overseas. We weren't making any money. We had sold everything before to go there. In fact, my husband, he could have had a good-paying job. But like I said, we felt we were called there. I can't even get into it. like You see signs in everything if you're our you're a certain type of Christian. We were seeing signs and everything. And we ended up moving into what's called a granny flat in the back of an Austrian man's house so we could take care of his chickens while he flew to Austria to sprinkle his wife's ashes. And that's how we saved money. And then we sold our car and went. Um, We ended up meeting some other missionaries there who had a, quote, English school. A lot of missionaries do not go to countries and say, I'm a missionary. They say, I'm an English teacher. And that's the way they can get visas or, you know, just enter the country in general because some don't let missionaries in. And then a lot of them do teach, quote, English, which is just like, hey, this is called a hat. This is called a cup. I mean, it can be very basic. And that's what we did. And we actually had them pay like $2 a week to us. We didn't make any money, but it was the quote center that made the money. We should really look into all of this. And what we did was we would teach them and try and do friendship evangelism eventually. We'd do things with them socially afterwards. And then on Saturday, we'd invite all of the students back for club night, where my husband would get out his guitar and use his beautiful voice to sing boys to men's songs. They would love it. And then we'd sing like a Christian song we would teach them because, you know, you get them singing that. Ooh, they're going to fall for Christ quickly. And then um, there would be like a two-minute sermon, and that was it. There are so many things about mission work that are sneaky, because not only were we lying that this was a real English center and that we were real English teachers. I was the only one with an English degree. But we knew people there that were smuggling Bibles into China, and they were like the ultimate missionaries there. But God's law is higher than man's law, and that's how it was always discussed and talked about. And because you're supposed to be a humble Christian, and I was in many ways, but there is a different feeling of elitism when you're a missionary because you're in that bubble and you are sort of, you know, pointed out and bragged about, and my parents loved that I was a missionary, And after a while, because of finances and because of the visa situation where we were, after a while, we felt that God was calling us back home, and this time to America, because my husband and I, after we married, did live in Australia, but now we were going to head to America. And this is when things began to unravel further, and I had a lot of questions And I went through years of heartache and being really scared I would die and go to hell before my questions were answered. And because this is so long, please stay tuned for part two, which is going to come out tomorrow. See ya.